If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 5. Um, and I'm actually, I'm not preaching today with, uh, I had something going on with my schedule. That I didn't even know if I was going to be here until this morning. So uh, we, we planned for uh, Brenton to preach. I'm really excited. Uh, I met Brenton just over a year ago um, at, a, at a camp. And uh, we realized like, oh, we're, we're both from Camas. And we start talking, we start talking church. And, and suddenly he's talking to me about Greek and Hebrew. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, let's talk more and more and more. And anyway, I'll, I'll let him introduce uh, a little bit more of himself because I know he is new to harvest, but uh, I'm really excited for just us as a body to, to have Brenton uh, preach from James chapter 5 this week. So let's give it up for Brenton. Good morning. Uh, let's see. So many of you probably don't know me since our family is newer to harvest. We've only been here about a year, as Greg was mentioning. Um, Let's see, so a little bit about me. I actually am an electrical engineer. I went to Multnomah Biblical Seminary for a while. Uh, the intention was to do the Masters of Divinity and then go into pastoral ministry full-time. Uh, God had other plans and it's been exciting to see how he's changed and directed our path over time. I actually went on at Multnomah to do a more advanced degree in their Masters of Theology, which that's what allowed me to teach at the seminary for a while as an adjunct professor. Um, that's the minimum degree you would need to be able to teach at graduate levels, but I got to teach at both um, the seminary and the college for a little while, um, teaching first-year Greek. So I will try not to spend too much time on that today, uh, but the truth is I actually have preached in a lot of various settings over the years, but more of my time has been spent actually teaching, which the, the main difference there, you're both communicating information, but in that kind of a setting, I can sit and have conversations back and forth a little bit easier. And so today that's not quite as easy as I stand up here with as many people as there are and the people online as well. So uh, I hope though that as we engage James chapter five today, that it doesn't stop there and that we can have conversation later. So I'm hoping that this will open up those conversations. So please join me as we open God's word together. And I'm gonna give you a disclaimer. This one is a doozy. All right, James chapter five, verses one through six. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up for yourselves treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who have did the harvesting has reached to the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Wow. Now, this is not the happiest passage in James. It's pretty harsh, right? In fact, at first glance, there's not even a lot of hope here, right? It's just what feels like a warning and a condemnation. Now, two weeks ago at the family meeting, Pastor Greg 
mentioned that he didn't really feel comfortable talking or preaching about money. And that's because it's a hard topic to talk about in church, right? As he said, though, money is a part of our worship. It's important how we use it, and we should want to be generous with it. In our passage today, James addresses how the misuse of wealth does not go unnoticed by the Lord. See, God takes note of the oppression by the greedy. And you know what their word will be? It'll be misery. Now, notice that James is not saying here that it's wrong to be rich, but that confidence in riches, especially those that come from exploitation, that's what is foolish. The way that we earn and the way that we use our wealth is very important to God. So let's go back to the larger context of James, right? So in this book, we are continually reminded that our lives should reflect, right, the way that our faith in Jesus Christ is played out. It should mirror God's character and the way that Jesus lived. See, James is seeking to connect our faith with the way that we live our lives. And by the time now that we've reached chapter 5, we've already addressed a whole lot of do's and don'ts. In fact, chapter 4, which we covered the past few weeks, has largely been filled with things that we're supposed to avoid. Things like quarrels, lust, murder, envy, friendships with the world, speaking evil of brothers or sisters, judging your neighbor in place of God, and arrogant boasting. Then the conclusion of all that in the last verse in chapter 4, verse 17, says that the person who knows the right thing to do and then doesn't do it, for that person it's sin. So, since that's the case, the way that we treat and acquire our wealth is extremely important. Looking at the first three verses together, the, the treasures of the rich are going to testify against them, and it's going to result in misery, and it's going to be like their flesh is being consumed by fire. So, who are the rich that are described in verse 1? See, again... Going back to the beginning of James, we see that this letter was written to the believers, the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. We see that in verse 1, very first beginning part of the book. Then if we flipped over to James 1.10, we could also see that the rich man is told to glory in his humiliation since it's going to pass away. Both James 1.10 and then our passage here today imply that the wealth is temporal, and it is folly when that's our security. Now, from such parallels, we might assume that really the rich ones are believers that James is addressing here. However, we could also note in James 1-2 that the recipients of the letter are actually facing various trials. They were exhorted to endure these testings of faith. And as such, the rich ones may actually be unbelievers who are oppressing the recipients of this letter. And honestly, various stances in different commentaries and different sermons, you, you can hear them at different times, they, they, they take a little bit different view on this. And so the question is, is why is that important? Was James just trying to encourage the oppressed believers who were enduring these trials? Or was he warning and telling the greedy rich believers to stop that behavior? 
the answer could include both. Now, we can tell from our specific text that it is addressed to rich people who oppress the people who depend on them. And therefore, it acts both as a polemic against the rich, believer or unbeliever, who oppress, but it's also an encouragement because when you are oppressed by the rich, God takes notice. Honestly, it, it doesn't really matter in some senses who is addressed because the results are a warning and an encouragement. For those that have children or that work with children, you might understand this very, very clearly. When you have two kids that are fighting over a toy that one stole from the other, right? And you are warning the one to give the toy back or there's going to be a consequence. For that child, they hear a warning. The other child is hearing this going, wait, if I'm patient, this person is going to take care of this issue, right? And so they are being encouraged to wait while the person in charge can deal with it. Now, this warning that we're talking about found at the start of James 5 is actually reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets. Words like weep, clio, and the whale, or in this text, howl, alleluzo, draw to mind the judgment that's going to come on the great and terrible day of the Lord. Whale, alleluzo, is a term that's used one time in the New Testament, right here in this passage. And yet, it's used a lot in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the prophets specifically like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, and Zechariah. And mostly, it's in a passage that's talking about coming judgment. Let's look at Isaiah 13.6 for a minute. In Isaiah 13.6, the context again is the judgment on the day of the Lord. Isaiah writes, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Another place that we see this is in Amos 8. If we turn over to Amos 8.3, where the judgment of Israel is being discussed. Amos writes, The songs of the palace will turn to wailing. In that day, declares the Lord God, many will be the corpses. In every place, they will cast them forth in silence. Now, if you guys have a few minutes later, you really should read all of Amos 8. That chapter, in that chapter, the Lord denounces the people who are trampling on the needy, using unjust scales. And then he warns them of the coming judgment. There are a lot of similarities, actually, between that Amos 8 passage and our passage in James 5. And we would do well to heed the warning in our own behavior and finances. Now, these passages from Isaiah and Amos were intended to warn the wicked, but they also show that God is going to take action. It will not go unnoticed. And the punishment is going to be severe. While the miseries of the rich may not be here yet, they are assuredly coming. They're not going to escape. It's just like in the Old Testament. They weren't able to escape when they continued in sin either. And in fact, neither will we. So what do the rich people place their confidence in here? 
James says is placed in their wealth, not God. And for this reason, when things are rotten or decayed, we tend to react not just at the smell, but even at the thought of such things. Now, when I worked for a while in Kansas City, my little sister came to live with me. And we would, in the evenings, after I got off work, we'd go over to a Christian coffee shop. It was called Hormores. It was a great place to hang out. And each night, my little sister would get a chai latte, and she would sip it. We would talk. We would hang out with friends. And at the end of the evening, we would go home. And she would set it on the counter in the kitchen and leave it there. So... After a while, it wouldn't get picked up, and I would eventually need to throw it out. I would have to take the cup, open the lid. Sorry, I'm going to try not to hurl, because the thought of it is just making me disgusted. That smell of spoiled milk as you pour out the chunky milk down the sink, right? It made me sick to my stomach every single time. And actually, to this day, I don't like chai or the smell of chai. Also spoiled milk. So having little kids with um, bibs with spoiled milk on it was very difficult. Because that chai smell just bothered me so much. And in fact, just the thought of it makes me like want to hurl actually right now. And you know what? James is saying that our confidence in our wealth is like a rotten chai latte. In the same way, he goes on to actually say that the garments of these rich people are moth-eaten, and their silver and their gold are rusted. Now, in biblical times, people didn't have large closets for their clothes and their shoes. In fact, they had far less than what my kids go through in a single day. And they were precious. They were cherished for their materials. They were cherished for their colors. Still, James is saying that it's as if their garments are eaten by moths and are completely worthless. Confidence is misplaced if it's holding to this. In high school, I had two things which I considered valuable. One was a red 1984 Toyota pickup, and I drove that thing everywhere, which was awesome growing up in Wyoming. It was a great place for a pickup like that. The second was a necklace that I got during my senior year of high school. 30 years later, the difference between the metals used in those two things is evident. My dad still has that old Toyota pickup. In fact, it's sitting at his house. And if you were to go out and examine it, you know what you would see? A mostly red Toyota pickup with lots of holes rusted right through that steel body. Time has not been kind to it. However, my gold necklace that I got, yes, I know, a necklace, not a ring for my senior year, is still at my house in a box. And if you were to pull it out and look at it, it's almost in the exact same state that it was 30 years ago. We know from experience that metals like silver and gold, they hold up over a long time. They don't rust right? That's why they're so precious. That's why they are so valuable. And yet, what James is saying here is that the gold and silver that these rich people are placing their confidence in is foolish because it is like my red Toyota pickup. When we stand before God and we examine it, 
it's as if it has rusted right through. In fact, James states that this rust is going to testify against them, and it's going to consume their flesh like fire. The word for rust, yas, isn't used a lot in the New Testament. Um, And it means often poison or venom, but it can also be translated as corrosion. Uh, James used it as poison in James 3.8. So if you flip over to that passage, James says when he's talking about the tongue, he says, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Paul also uses it that way in Romans 3.13. Both of these authors are picking up on the sense of this word as being poison or venom, which, when related to the tongue or to our speech, that shows just how destructive our words can be. Here, in this translation, we get corrosion or rust, and it shows that ill-gotten wealth is not only empty, but it's devoid of value and will, as one commentator noted, it's eventually going to turn on its possessor and it's going to burn like poison in our veins. In the end, the corrosion of this wealth is going to serve as a testimony in the final judgment against these people. The miseries that are coming upon them will consume their flesh like fire. Their treasures are worthless in the judgment during the last days. Even now, those treasures are worthless. So, in these first three verses, we we really have seen, right, the misplaced confidence in wealth. And at this point, we're going to turn now to how that wealth was gotten in the first place. And so it kind of fits as a section together. How did these rich people get this wealth? One of the questions that we might ponder a minute is, does the Lord still notice oppression of the wealthy? Like he did during the Old Testament? Does he notice when I oppress or when I'm being oppressed? Yes, the oppression of the greedy is heard by the Lord of hosts. Now, a little context might be helpful to understand why our experience today is actually a little bit different from the early church. Now, modern society, especially in the U.S., uses very little human labor on food production. Now, that's thanks in part to things like machinery, advances in farming technology, and very few people now are required to produce the food that actually we enjoy every day. And a single piece of farm equipment can now accomplish more in that day than it would have taken a whole crowd of people weeks to do. That often was done by hand, too. Things like farming and ranching, hunting and gathering involved a small number of people to produce the food for millions right now. The ability to refrigerate changed how long food could be stored, and it actually allowed us to be able to transport it across the world. When you go to the store, or when I go to the store, we're able to easily select from a variety of different foods from a whole host of different regions in the world. It's wonderful. Most of our society actually doesn't even work jobs that are related to food production. We don't. 
Now, this wasn't the case actually in the time of the Bible, whether you're in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Things like shepherding and agriculture actually required a majority of the people to participate. Much of the work was done by hand and with simple tools. It took large numbers of people to clear fields of stones, to plant, to weed, to harvest. Water wasn't pumped to sprinklers that would have been used for irrigation. Instead, they would have had to wait on the rains. The early and the late rains, especially for Israel, was so important. Food was typically limited only to the region where it was gathered. And food and spices from far off places, well, if you were able to get it, it would have been very valuable and very, very expensive because of the difficulty it would have taken to acquire it. So the importance that food in this production played in the ancient world can't, can't be understated. Food was produced. There was less of it produced. And... It was, more of it was actually lost when you didn't have refrigeration, right? So because of this, it becomes important for daily life. It's really hard to get, so it becomes expensive. In fact, calendars were actually tailored around food production. The Jewish calendar, if you look in the Old Testament, you see the feasts that are specifically related to food production. You get the Feast of first fruits at the beginning of the harvest. You get the Feast of Weeks at the end of the grain harvest. There are lots of different places in that calendar where you can see food production being central to the life and culture of the people. Now, in the midst of this kind of environment, day laborers were really important. People would work the fields or they would shepherd and then they would expect their pay at the end of the day. They needed that money each day. And even a small delay was unfathomable. They didn't have banks to store their money. They needed that money and then they would go and buy their food and then the other things that they would need. Not only this, but a fair wage for the work that they did was exceedingly important. Their lives depended on it. Now, while our context might actually be a little bit different from those in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know what? We understand how difficult it is when our paychecks are delayed, right? We know how much we struggle to make ends meet and how anxious we feel when the bills arrive, especially when they're a lot more than what we expected. I don't know. Maybe one of the worst things to do is get a medical bill that comes months after the when we went in and then find out that it was for way more than we expected and get two or three of them, right? Like that is frustrating. We are filled with sorrow when a bank permanently closes and we lose our life savings. We mourn recessions and stock market crashes. And when these things are the result of somebody being wicked, how much more unbearable? In verse 4, James now turns from the weeping and the wailing of the rich that are withholding the wages to actually the outcries, the metaphorical outcries of the wages that were withheld, right? And to the outcry of the harvesters. 
the rich people had not paid the people who mowed their fields and harvested. This was a death sentence. Those laborers needed that wage to survive. But it's also here that we see that those cries do not go unnoticed. They reach all the way up to heaven, right into the very ears of the Lord himself. He has heard. Now, I don't know if you recognize that words like hearing in the Bible imply more than simply sounds reaching the ears. Now, in my home, I am often aggravated by the number of times I say something like, please pick up that toy, or please turn off that light. And then I come back, maybe minutes or hours later, and find it in the exact same state it was when I left, right? I can't help but say, did you hear what I asked? All the while, you know what I know? They heard me. But because I didn't see them act on it, it was as if they had never heard me in the first place. And this is not what the Bible is describing when it talks about hearing. When we're told by Christ to hear, it is so important that the action follows. Matthew eleven fifteen. the context being that John the Baptist is in prison, and they come to ask him about that. And Jesus talks about that all the prophets and the law prophesied about these things. And he says to the people then in Matthew eleven fifteen, he who has an ear, let him hear. Later on in Revelations 2.29, these warnings have been given out to the seven churches. And we are told, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In both of these verses and in lots of other passages, the idea is that we hear and then act accordingly. When God's word reaches our ears, we should respond with right action. This past week, my youngest daughter actually gave me a perfect illustration. Um, she was on the way out the door to the school bus, and she specifically stopped what she was doing. She dropped her stuff, she ran back upstairs to her room, and she turned off her lights. And my wife, when she saw her do this, and she came back down, actually started clapping for her and giving her an ovation. Why? Because she actually heard, finally, all those times that I had told her to turn off her lights before she went to school. And she remembered, and she acted on it. We need to be attentive hearers and doers as well. This is also what it means that the outcries have reached the ears of the Lord. God not only hears, but he acts. And who is this God who has heard the outcries of the oppressed? He is Yahweh, Sabaoth. Some translations have this as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. Each name that the Bible uses for God tells us something specific about his character. This name, Yahweh Sabaoth, is used over 300 times in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, as a name for God. What does it imply? It implies that his reign over heaven and earth, and his reign over all earthlies and spiritual armies, is complete. It reveals his sovereignty, that he is in charge. You know, when David went out to meet the Philistine 
giant Goliath. He used this specific name in response to Goliath's taunts. In 1 Samuel 17.45, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. David understood that that battle belonged to the Lord, and he was relying on God. Later, when David wrote Psalm 12, he emphasized that it's our God who acts on behalf of these needy people. He says in Psalms 12:5, because of the devastation of the poor, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will put him in safety for which he longs. Because our God is Yahweh Sabaoth, we rely on him for our daily needs and those daily battles we face. He will not fail us. He is the Lord of hosts. He not only hears, but he acts. Turning back to the stolen wages of the laborers, why do they even reach up to the Lord's ear? First, James indicates that they, the rich ones, have lived luxuriously on the earth. They took those wages so they could buy whatever they desired. And they would want to enjoy all the finest things. And most of us can appreciate the kind of luxury you might see with an exotic automobile. Or taking a two-week trip on a cruise. However, the rich people described here, they would have reserved a cruise cabin for an entire year with the stolen wages and just enjoyed themselves. And the issue here isn't wealth or money or luxury per se. It's actually that it came from greed and theft. That's what allowed these rich people to live in this manner. He also goes on here to say that they have lived lives of wanton pleasure. Now that goes way beyond theft out of necessity. They stole so that they could feel good and enjoy themselves. Sadly, this is the type of behavior that we might see in the news when we hear that some apparently wealthy person just ran off with all the finances from the company that they owned. Meanwhile, they leave behind the people to deal with the debt. They go off and live lives of unrestrained pleasure. They're looking to enjoy themselves no matter who they hurt. That's why James says that they've fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. With their ill-gotten money, they have lived large. It was as if they were fattening their hearts with all that luxury and pleasure. You know what? It's like an animal, though, at a slaughterhouse, completely unaware of the impending doom. They're living unaware that they're already in the day of slaughter. It's already upon us. And while it might not come for some of us during this wisp of life that we have, it is going to happen. At some point, we're going to stand before the Lord and have to give an account for the way that we acted, the way that we behaved. 
And the Lord is going to hold us responsible. There's no getting out of it. And if that wasn't enough, these people, these rich ones, they condemned and they murdered. They murdered the righteous person. They oppressed the people so much to the point of death because greed brought devastation. But look in the passage here. The laborers are actually considered righteous in all this. They aren't striking back, right? They're not attacking the rich. That's not what we're seeing. Instead, they offer no resistance. These righteous people should remind us of Christ, right? Who himself was condemned and murdered, but he offered no resistance. The righteous offer no resistance, and in fact, many times we can't, right? We have no means to fight back and respond, and so we are helpless and have to cry out, someone save us. The way that verse 6 ends, I just, I ache. I ache for more. I want to know that justice is coming, right? I want to know that they're going to get their comeuppance. I want to know that the wicked won't endure forever. And with the prophet Jeremiah, I want to say, why do the wicked prosper? And why do the faithless live at ease? The internet is full of videos of people tracking down scammers, especially from call centers overseas. And when the call starts, I can often feel my frustration growing. I hear the smooth words that the scammers are using. They're trying to trick people, especially the unsuspecting, because they want to steal from them. And from the deepest parts of my soul, I want to yell at those scammers, stop, don't do it, right? But later in the video, my angst changes a little bit, because especially when I see like these YouTubers and these people that are using the same scammers' tricks against them, like, it finally feels good. On Friday, I was actually watching a video where they set up what they called the People's Call Center. Their whole intent was to hinder scammers. So they would call these call centers up and then waste hours of their time so that they wouldn't be able to call other people. Meanwhile, the other thing that they would be doing in the background is actually infiltrating their computers and their computer networks. They would be recording IP addresses, and they would actually get into their pictures and find out who these people were, where these call centers were, and then they would take that information and they would send it to the authorities. You know, when I watch videos like this one, especially other ones that I've watched where at the end of it, that the police come and actually arrest some of those scammers, like, I get excited. <laughs> It feels good. My previous tension eases, and I, I'm actually at peace. Why? Because justice came about in the end. In James 5, 1 through 6, God takes note of the oppression by the greedy. And the reward? It's misery. We want justice when we are oppressed. But you know what? We also need warnings to stop when we are the ones that are oppressing. This passage serves as both. In it, we see that our God not only hears, but he acts. He is the Lord of hosts, our Yahweh, Sabaoth. From James, 
we learn that God takes note of the oppression by the greedy and the reward will be misery. We know this misery is coming because God is the one who has heard and he will be the one to act on it. So how we earn and how we use our money, it's extremely important to God. And in light of today's text, we should take time to actually examine our own finances and see if we're pleasing before the Lord. Are you being generous with your money? Please heed this warning. I don't want you to feel the fate of Old Testament Israel. I'll give you a spoiler. It didn't end well. In fact, Israel was forcibly removed from the promised land, and then they were subjected to some pretty terrible events. You know why? Because they refused to heed God's warning. For some of us, though, we find ourselves in a little bit different situation. We find ourselves oppressed. We find ourselves afflicted from various trials and from various sources. You know what James tells us? Beginning this book, he told us to endure, right? He told us to endure, knowing that our God's going to notice. He's going to act. And that's the encouragement here. He is the Lord of hosts. He is Yahweh, Sabaoth. When such trials come, cry out to him. Call upon the Lord for his salvation because he is our Lord, Sabaoth. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are the one who hears. Thank you for taking note when we are oppressed, but also for warning us when we oppress others. God, cause our hearts to be more like you, to flee ill-gotten pleasure and then cling to what's right. It's difficult. Help us. May we cry out to you when we are oppressed and cling to your right hand. May we see you as you really are. Yahweh, Sabayah, our Lord of hosts. Amen.